reject the ideology of globalism and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. everyone you're tuned in to evidence of design on 100.9 fm wxir in rochester my name is jason taylor joined in the studio by my good friends and co-hosts matt dreadwell yellow hey i hear you matt and mary lawrence i am not oh good morning i hear you i just don't hear myself that's That's very strange you are definitely coming through okay well that works as long as you folks can hear me i don't need to hear myself um so Thanks for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station. This is Evidence of Design. We are live on WXIR on Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Our show is all about critiquing economic inequality. We think there is way too much economic inequality out there in society. We believe that economic inequality does not happen by accident. We believe it is created, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by bad policies. These policies have ended up creating a society where income and wealth is increasingly concentrated in fewer and fewer hands as more and more people are left behind. This is especially so in the United States over the past 50 years and of course has manifested differently, especially through race and gender over the past several centuries. But in today's society, we see economic inequality manifested so poignantly through also increasing concentration of political power. Those who have most of the economic resources also seemingly control most of the political power. Hey, these through lines can also be made throughout history. We are critiquing them, though, here and now today, because we believe we can do something about this economic inequality. If we elect the right people, if we have the right policies, there's no reason why our society should have so much inequality, marginality, and other forms of precarity. So our show is all about examining where this economic inequality comes from and trying to wonder and propose what we do about it. On today's show and specifically, on Saturday, May 22nd, 2021? Yep. Okay, I said it was the 21st earlier. So 22nd, Saturday, May 22nd, we are talking about critical race theory. That might be a term you've heard in the news on a national sense. Typically, you might see it as a one of the age-old left versus right debates of the left, whatever that means, in favor of CRT, critical race theory, and the right, whatever that means, opposed to it. However, it's not just a theoretical national culture war. It manifests locally and personally. We just went through uh, many school board elections in Monroe County last Thursday, I believe, or Tuesday. I don't even know where I am right now. I am so discombobulated. Let me just say this. Recently, there were many school board elections in Monroe County, and many of the candidates in the school board elections were opposed, expressly so, to critical race theory. Why is that? 
What is critical race theory? What's it all about? We're going to be talking about it today with a very special guest who'll be joining us on the phone in just a little bit, Dr. Joanne Larson, who is a professor at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. Full disclosure, I learned about critical race theory from Dr. Larson some time ago, and I think she'll be able to help us to understand it as well. Before we get there, though, just want to remind you that you can participate in today's show in many ways. One, you can give us a call, 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. If you've never called into a radio show before, now you can. You can put it on your resume. You can accomplish something new today, 585-219-8889. If you don't know what to say, just do what Matt does. On, on air. Uh, exactly. So it's really great stuff. 585-219-8889. You can also participate with us on our Facebook or social media handles, Radio EOD. Mary, I'm seeing some uh, head shaking over there. Are we not able to live stream on Facebook right now? We're working on it. All right. Well, that's good. Let's not waste any more time. Let's go into critical race theory. I believe joining us on the phone is Dr. Joanne Larson. She is the Michael Scandling Professor of Education and the Associate Director of Research at the Center for Urban Education Success at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. And she's joining us here right now on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM, WXIR. Dr. Larson, you should be on the air. Are you there? I am here. I hope you can hear me all right. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. We hear you loud and clear. I mentioned uh, earlier so far that I happened to learn about critical race theory with you several years ago, and I really mm -hmm. appreciate your time coming here with us to talk about what critical race theory is. So <laughs> I want to, I know this is very unfair of a question because uh, you could spend, a, you know, a book on this, but let me ask you, what is critical race theory, or really, what is it not? Great questions. So, in a nutshell, critical race theory is both a theory, a theoretical lens, and an interpretive lens that was developed out of uh, legal studies by Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Richard Delgado that really examines the appearance of race and racism in dominant cultural modes of expression. In other words, structures, practices, uh, policies, um, in mostly in the United States, although it, it, it relates to uh, minoritized people globally, but mostly it focuses on people of color, minoritized populations in the United States try to understand how systemic racism affects uh, people of color and um, how the how what action it has an activism component so that it's really about seeking to change those structures so that oppression uh, goes away basically I don't know if that makes sense yeah I guess there you know there's one lens of viewing racism and that is through the lens of racism manifests through individual prejudice. So you are a racist because you have bad thoughts, and if we change your bad thoughts, racism is no longer there with you. The critical race theory, I think, uh, has a more expansive view of race and marginality, and that is sort of the intersection of racism, policy, and power. And so it's not just about, oh, you know, you're a racist because you think bad things. It's, it's much more nuanced than that. Am I right? Absolutely. And it's, it's definitely not about pointing fingers at individuals. The, there are five key assumptions in critical race theory. And one is that racism is ordinary <clears throat> and not aberrational, that it's endemic in the United States in systems, policies, and practices. Um, so when we talk about excuse me, white su supremacy, it's not looking at white supremacists, but the ways in which whiteness is privileged as the norm against which all other populations are measured or positioned as somehow not good enough. 
And it's a systemic approach to understanding how racism and racist ideas manifest in the everyday life of people and who benefits and who doesn't. Some of the other um, key ideas are the idea that race is a social construction. It's not biological. Um, the activist component of critical race theory focuses on storytelling and counter-storytelling. One of, one of the ways the activist component is that you, you tell, the, tell the different story or the counter story so that people can gain, hopefully, empathy and understanding. And what I particularly find useful right now is the concept of interest convergence, which means that if that whites will allow and support racial justice and progress to the extent that there is something positive in it for them. So, and this kind of leads to this idea that the civil rights legislation that happened in the 60s, which benefited uh, African Americans and others, certainly, but uh, evidence has clearly shown that white women have actually been the, the most, the, the population has benefited the most from civil rights legislation. So, you know, people support it. White people will support, or whiteness, let's move away from individuals, supports um, anti-racist ideas when, they're, when they see a benefit for themselves, rather than simply doing it because human beings deserve a right to be seen as fully human. You asked it earlier what it is not. I think there's a lot of misconceptions that, that critical race theory is some sort of Marxist plot to take over democracy, right? <laughs> I think that's just wildly inaccurate. And, um, again, as you pointed out, it's not about pointing fingers at individuals, but at changing the systems that oppress and marginalize people in this country. Hmm. Uh, what critical race theory is not, you just mentioned, is not a Marxist plot to take over democracy. I mean, if that, if that yeah. sounds far-fetched, this past week, when in the, in the jurisdiction where I voted for school board, I was talking to a local school board candidate who literally told me that um, they thought that CRT is a Marxist plot. And <laughs> I had a long conversation with that individual, and, you know, I didn't tell him this, but uh, if it is a Marxist plot, I mean, personally, it's like, that's great to me. No, I'm just, you know, I was yeah, like, what's the big deal with Marxist plots? I, mean, I think that's a pretty good idea. Yeah. We're, we're pro-Marxist <laughs> plots and evidence of design, but no. <laughs> So you know, it, it's it's mad. It, it's sort of it's in the Kool Aid, right? Uh, the, this, these ideas. Um, I want to ask you, Doctor Larson. Critical race theory is not the only critical theory out there, right? Before we get into the specifics, as you mentioned, more about critical race theory. What is what is critical theory? That's a that's a whole branch of knowledge or understanding too, right? Yes, it is, and they're similar but not the same in the sense that critical theory really goes back to a, a development of, a, of, of systems of thought from the Frankfurt School in Germany that looks at, similarly, looks at power and oppression in systems and practices uh, and does also seek to change them, but more about, uh, about ha having people really unplug from the matrix, right, to see how, this, how, how the world works and the ways in which some people benefit and some people don't and that the people who don't often suffer greatly. And, and it's, it's, it is connected to critical race theory in the sense that both are looking at these systems of power and oppression, but critical race theory really focuses on the racism and racist ideas that are inherent in the United States. They've you know, rooted 400 years of, of, of enslavement, et cetera, and how that manifests here, and it's very different in the United States than it is in other countries. But they're related, and there's also, you know, I, I do a lot of work with critical literacy, which is the, is very similar, and it what it does is looks at how literacy, using literacy in, in the teaching and learning of literacy, a person comes to understand how power oppresses them and then can then use literacy to transform that oppression. So they're very related, it, it, uh, you know, all these sort of quote-unquote critical um, are related in that sense of understanding power and how, how power works to oppress. Um, but they, again, it's very critical race theories are very focused on the United States and racism and racist ideas. Hmm. 
Yeah, so critical theory is born out of, you, you mentioned the Frankfurt School, other ways mm-hmm. of thinking, perhaps more, you know, postmodern thought. And, and, and yep. I'm really struck by, maybe this is a little off topic, but I'm really struck by the sort of duality or tension between the idea of postmodernism and also the rise of belief in, say, conspiracy theories. So whereas like a, a postmodern mm-hmm. thought is, you know, postmodernism means sort of question everything, be skeptical of universal values, be skeptical of the notion of true objectivity, be skeptical of the notion of maybe individual meritocracy, as opposed to thinking about systemic, you know, uh, raising or lowering of, of people's so-called success. And, and so there's sort of this notion of question everything and, and think about power's manifestations. And that's also sort of, I, I see that as juxtaposed to the increasing susceptibility or belief in uh, the you know, fake news or, um, or other sort of fantastical conspiracy theories that also have this almost postmodern-esque <laughs> belief of like questioning everything, but it gets kind of perverted and twisted, I think. so. It's not, I mean, that's an interesting way to think about it. I think, though, that, that there, you know, if there could be a postmodern or post-structural examination of these conspiracy theories, people, so the people who believe in those are inside them, and they're not looking from any kind of meta-awareness to look at how those mm. narratives, what postmodernism and post-structuralism would call meta-narratives, are in, ter- in turn shaping and oppressing and and guiding them in ways to think just like those in power want them to think. So they're not, so critical race theory, critical theories, critical literacy asks the person to come outside that and understand what's going on and and, um, to work against it because the, you know, the conspiracy theorists are the the victims of those theories in a sense. Hmm. Um, The people following along in other words. And, and I think critical theory, critical race theory, especially, you know, wants people to stop following along and to really question what's going on and, and, and how you're being manipulated um, to, to serve those in power uh, at your own expense. Hmm. That's really powerful. For those who are just joining us, you're tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester, and we're joined with Dr. Joanne Larson. She's the Michael W. Scandling Professor of Education and the Associate Director of Research at the Center for Urban Education Success at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. We're talking about critical race theory this hour. You can share your thoughts with us anytime by giving us a call at 585-219-8889 or emailing us at radioeod at gmail.com. Dr. Larson, I know you do a lot of work locally in education. You mentioned about your work in uh, literacies, which I think is really interesting. You've also mentioned so far what critical race theory is and it's sort of a way to understand the intersection of racism power and systems you mentioned that critical race theory kind of uh, supposes that race is normal uh, racism is, is normal not aberrational it's a it's a construction it's not sort of inherently natural and it uses narratives or storytelling as perhaps a means to understanding uh, people's points of view and 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 the effects of racism's manifestations uh, can you give us a sense of why perhaps critical race theory or new and better, stronger understandings of racism and marginality are needed in today's schools? That's a great question. A kind of snarky answer would be the situation we're in right now in the United States where so many believe ridiculousness is a product of very poor and um, uh, white supremacist teaching that's been going on, right? So that, one, I think it's important to teach accurate history and to uh, not only include African Americans at enslavement and civil rights and include them as them and others as an integral part of the creation of this, of the history of the United States, um, but I also think, too, critical race theory brings a certain um, <clears throat> understanding of systemic 
oppression and racism to the conversation in schools, but also it's not a new, it, in the sense that Gloria Ladson Billings founded the idea of culturally relevant pedagogy many years ago. And newer work has talked about culturally sustaining pedagogy that, that, that moves not beyond, I mean, takes the idea of, of understanding that white, whiteness is not the norm, it's a mythical norm, and to understand that there are many other people that live in this country who have, who've, who've, who've contributed importantly to who we are as a society, and their histories deserve to be taught too. And when you're standing in a classroom and you see you know, the, the incredible range of human variation there, they all count as human beings, and they deserve to see themselves in the curriculum to bring their ideas and practices to school in a way that it's included and not thrown out as being not good enough, not school enough. So I think, you know, the larger issue here is to understand that human beings all have value and everybody counts and everybody means everybody. And so culturally relevant, culturally sustaining pedagogies build on this idea of moving beyond whiteness of the norm and then critical is the norm, and then critical race theory brings a theoretical and analytical lens to be able to help young people understand how systems work to oppress. We can focus on racism and race, uh, racist ideas. There's also how patriarchy works to oppress young women. I mean, there's a way to at which this kind of lens builds a critical populace who can be democratically engaged in, in policies and voting and working against the ways in which this country severely damages so many people. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on and on about that, but I think that that's why it's important, because there's just real harm being done. Uh, there's real harm in the, in the you know, police murder of citizens, but there's also real harm in, in, in some classrooms every day where... Um, you know, we just the data is overwhelming. Overrepresentative representation of African Americans and Latinx populations in special education, discipline, the various structures. You can clearly see it's just it's not rocket science. You look at the data and you see the white kids are all in AP and advancing in honors, and the black and brown kids are all in you know suspended. It's mm. just not that's not by accident, and it's not because there's some innate deficit in black and brown children. But I think these the sort of white supremacy tries to build that narrative. So the counter story or counter narrative to that is no, look how this has been constructed. Well, yeah, there's a lot there. I, I don't know how helpful of an example this would be, but I, I guess one very cynical and unhelpful take is that uh, black and brown students perform poorly in school because they don't care about learning. You know, there's there, that's a racist narrative and i've heard it from people to say well yes i have too. they they perform bad because uh they just their parents don't care and they don't care about education whereas uh, maybe a, a more nuanced understanding is that the perception of uncaring about education is actually more accurately manifested through histories of racism and per, and oppression that still happen today uh, as again manifested through um lack of economic opportunity, lack of career opportunities, lack of, you know, <laughs> social and humanity opportunities uh, from just being able to be realized as a full and equal human being. And so what perhaps to one person manifests is like, oh, uncaring um, is actually like, well, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. And and it, I think there are two things I'd like to respond to that in the sense that this, this you know, quote-unquote lack that you're talking about is, is didn't just happen. Hmm. It was done on purpose. And the other thing is a lot of the people or the narratives around, deficit, deficit narratives around people of color about not caring and not doing X, Y, and Z, uh, is for people who've never been in or around any of those people in those communities. And who have never seen the the familiar interactions and deep caring that goes on in different communities, and the and the way different different cultures see schools and see their relationship to schools. Some cultures, school is supposed to do X, I do Y, 
you know, they, they don't intersect. And so it's about understanding what are the, the practices in the communities your school serves and working to include those practices in the school instead of saying, okay, you're not good enough because you don't do it the way we do it, the way we've always done it. And critical race theory helps us see that the, quote, way we've always done it has been to purposely keep you out and to keep you in a failing position. And you can just look at redlining as an example of how um, African-American families in Rochester, I mean, you don't have to go to some other place. This is <laughs> it, uh, evident in Rochester, a federal policy designed to keep, to prevent African-Americans from purchasing homes. And, and then when you think of home ownership and the economic benefits and the building of wealth and, you know, the transferring of wealth to future generations, et cetera, was all purposely denied to a population. And then you, and then you, can, you can layer on school performance, crime rates, poverty levels, et cetera. They're all in that, if you just look at the map of Rochester and the red line from the, I guess it was the 40s and 50s, the same line is there for all those other markers. Mm-hmm. So that's what, how critical race theory helps us to see how all of that work together. And there's lots of wonderful work on, on places like Ferguson and other places to show that Michael Brown's murder didn't just happen out of the blue. There were there's histories and systems and oppressions that work to produce that that event, right? And um, what why I appreciate critical race theory is it helps me understand how all of this worked together. Because you're right, it is very complicated. But I don't want to sort of sit with saying, "Yay, it's more complicated than that." Move on. Mm-hmm. Let's unpack that complication, those complications, and then work to change them so we don't just keep repeating them and allowing these things to happen. I appreciate your reminder that we don't have to look elsewhere to find examples of racism and oppression and perhaps the utility, the usefulness of more nuanced understandings of racism and marginality. We can look very easily locally as redlining, as you mentioned. And I know even just a few weeks ago, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but there was the Democrat and Chronicle and others reported on a, a worksheet that was used in the, in the Pittsburgh school district about um, slavery and <laughs> where slaves came from and I don't mm-hmm. quite remember what the worksheet said, but it was, uh, you know, slaves sort of... They were voluntary workers. <laughs> right. As if they right. chose to, you know, come to America and be farmers. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny because it's I mean, so sad and more, wrong. How, you know? how much yeah. more inaccurate do you, you want to get? <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we don't have to look too far to see why mm-hmm. better understandings of, of, of race and marginality taught in, in our school systems could be useful. Uh, without getting too complicated, but you know, there, there's critical race theory that we've been mentioning. You also brought up culturally relevant pedagogy. I know that the, the phrase anti-racism has been kind of um, around to Ibram X. Kendi, I believe. So can you sort of put in context for us what the work of anti-racism is or, or also culturally relevant pedagogy is and, and how those sort of work in school systems to hopefully provide for better education today? I think they, they build on each other. Culturally re- relevant pedagogy was established by Gloria Ladson Billings many years ago and created that kind of field of study and curriculum and teaching uh, and has been built upon by Django Paris and H. Sami Aleem, uh, Aleem to, um, rather than just relevant, let's also think about how we can sustain the valuing of, of various groups of people in the United States and then um, coming forward with Ibram uh, Kendi's work on understanding racist ideas in the United States to then move towards, let's not just stop at understanding, let's move to working against it actively. So anti-racism, Kendi argues you're, uh, it's either racist or anti-racist. There's no kind of in-between. And so the work in anti-racism we've been doing at East High School in terms of the curriculum, but also at the U of R and many institutions across the Rochester area, really getting people to understand how racism works in this country and how microaggressions, simple things like, you know, can I touch your hair or other ways in which it just is hurtful to people. 
And I know that there's a, the, a narrative of the, probably the same person that said it was, you know, critical race theory with the Marxist plot would talk about people are like too, people are too sensitive today. Like, really, like, which people are too sensitive? And uh, and you're not sensitive because none of this matters to you because you can walk in your walk around in your white male body in this country and have nothing, you know, hurt you. I am not saying that individual lot, individual human beings don't experience trauma in their lives. Everybody does. Friends die, people die, illness, all kinds of things happen. Nobody's saying that just because you're white you never have any problems. Nobody's saying that. What we're saying is there's that regular part of being a human being and all these other roadblocks in the way that are put there on purpose. And the idea is to take those roadblocks out. And we have to do that in school. We have to help people understand how that works so that um, it's, it can eventually be dismantled and we can have a, a truly equitable society. Hmm. I think the people who who make that claim that society is too uh, easily offended these days are really just telling you something about themselves because they're often the people who are most unable to have those types of conversations. Agreed. Hmm. Agreed. Like I, I, I hate that political correctness argument. It's like, no, it's not about being correct, politically correct. It's about valuing people as human beings and not hurting them. Why does it hurt you to to include your pronouns in your Zoom identity? Is that why does that hurt you? If it helps another person feel a part of, without having to stand out and constantly be marking themselves, let's just all do it. Like, what's the problem? Well, I want to delve more into that, and just as a reminder that you're tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking with Dr. Joanne Larson, who's a professor of education at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. We're talking this hour about critical race theory, and you can share your thoughts with us at 585-219-8889. Again, 585-219-8889. Dr. Larson, earlier in our talk, you mentioned about some of the central sort of tenets of critical race theory or understandings of it. And one of them, you mentioned this interesting notion of interest convergence. You gave the mm -hmm. example how, uh, you know, it's not benefiting one group need not necessarily de-benefit or lessen the, the benefit for another. You mentioned how uh, white women, for instance, benefited greatly from civil rights legislation in, 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 say, the 1960s and beyond. So, and as we were just talking about how some folks might hide behind uh, political correctness because they're feeling like the world's changing and, and they're under assault, they're coming under attack uh, for the benefit of others, I, there was a Supreme Court decision in 2007. There's a, the case was called Parents Involved in Community Schools versus Seattle School District, number one. And uh, the Supreme Court, I'm not going to go into the details of the case, but I want to go into the reactions from two of the justices, which I think is really important uh, and really interesting. So Chief Justice John Roberts concluded in that case which really ended up arguing sort of against um, <laughs> teachings about, um, you know, overt teachings about race in schools, he ended up concluding, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. I, I think one... Just plug your ears and <laughs> sing really loudly and it'll all go away. Right. I think he's sort of saying, well, if we want sort of, racial discrimination to go away, to stop talking about race. You know, we're a post-racial society, perhaps. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she retorted, quote, it's very hard for me to see how you can have a racial objective but a non-racial means to get there. So you have this one statement, the best way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Another statement, it's hard for me to see how you can have a racial objective but a non-racial means to get there. I think those are just two really powerful and revealing ways of understanding um, or ways of looking at racial problems in our society, marginal problems in our society. So I guess my long-winded question here is, what's the deal with uh, anti-racist education, with critical race theory? Um, 
Is it about needing to have, say, reverse discrimination to achieve equity? Or is it more about this notion of interest convergence? What are interest convergence? What are your thoughts? I think, okay, so that's a lot in there. Mm -hmm. But what it made me think about are two concepts that critical race theory helps us understand, and that is this idea of colorblindness and meritocracy, right? So colorblindness serves a couple of, you know, functions. One, it allows white people to feel kind of consciously ir irresponsible for hardships people of color face. Like, I don't see race. Well, no, you don't see race because you don't have to, right? But but race, race as a social construct is a real, um, a real uh, thing. I, I'm sorry, I can't think of a phenomena. word. Mm -hmm. A phenomena, good, thank you very much. That, that is used consciously to oppress people. And you can pretend it doesn't exist, like let's, you know, not dealing with, I mean, I, I would agree with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's you know, kind of my hero, <laughs> but colorblindness doesn't serve anybody's needs, and it really, other than, if you bring in interest convergence, it serves the need of whites to have an other in or, for themselves to flourish, right? If they're doing poorly, I'm, I'm doing better, and you can maintain your influence and you cannot your your role in society and you cannot um have to face that maybe what you your life and how you're living is really on the backs of somebody else and it's a way to to ignore the problem and same thing with meritocracy right there's i remember a student said to me one time you know you know there's a hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps right you work hard and and the student said to me, yeah, but, you know, you have to have boots. <laughs> and there are people who don't have boots. And they don't have boots because people purposely didn't give them to them. And it, it's like, I understand that people don't want to hear that. But, you know, sorry. It's it's the way it is. And if, you, if we want to be a society, and maybe we don't. You know, on bad days, I'm like, people absolutely just don't care. And they use all these <laughs> various clever language, linguistic terms, but fundamentally they just don't care. I mean, how can you be a community of Pitt in Pittsburgh that can literally, we can literally see the suburbs from East High School and know what's going on around, around them in the city of Rochester and just don't care. Go about there, as I've seen in some, some literature that I, I've read, you know, you go about your pretty little lives well, there are people, like, you don't have to go to foreign countries to look at child poverty and concentrated poverty and food insecurity and homelessness. I mean, you know, it's, I, I live in the city, probably, and, it, you know, I can, I, you know, it's like, it's my neighbors. And uh, it's just not okay with me, and I don't, I have a, a hard time understanding how it's okay with so many people, or at least based on the last election, 70 million. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. Yes, and, and about I don't know if I answered your question, Jason. I, uh, but I, but the you know this idea of um, you know colorblindness and removing it from the conversation is just a convenient way that whiteness avoids the problem. Yeah, absolutely, and you know it, it, it's a, it's a messy question because I'm often just I. I I hear all the time from folks about, uh, well, critical race theory is just reverse discrimination. It's reverse racism. It's racist against white people. That doesn't and, even exist. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's like, oh, where do, where do we begin on, on unpacking that? You yeah. know? Um, it's just a false, it's a false narrative and it's designed to distract and to keep, uh, you know, somebody who, who's not good enough as a focus instead of looking at your, ourselves. And, and how we contribute to this kind of um, oppression in, you know, of our own neighbors. Mm. And in some cases, our own family members. Dr. Larson, I wonder if I could ask you a question now, sort of going along the same subject, in that, you know, there's the, there's the side of, I guess, of, of uh, America's politics or population even that doesn't want to even acknowledge... Um, that racism is real. There's another side, uh, perhaps more popular among centrists, and uh, I guess what you would call mainstream culture in America, that 
says, yeah, racism is real. I mean, just look at all the the uh, police killings and um, the the uh, proliferation of hate groups, especially under the the last president's uh, term. But their sort of uh, acknowledgement of that doesn't go beyond sort of saying, you know, racism is real. Uh, it's when you do or say bad things to people, and it doesn't sort of take into account the material sort of cost that has been levied on people um, across generations. And when I, I think of like, you know, I've been seeing a lot of ads recently from like these big companies like Amazon. There's one with Amazon, like a, um, a Latino man and his family, and he's like a, a truck driver, and he's talking about how Amazon is such a great place to work. And, you know, he, ha- he feels like he has an opportunity to make a difference there. And it's like, you know, Amazon is this huge company that is kind of like just the epitome of uh, uh, economic and wealth disparity in America. And um, I guess what I'm saying is, what do you make of sort of this sort of almost co-option of like, um, you know, accepting that racism is real, but not really recognizing the sort of economic and material disparity that it has inflicted on so many communities, and do you think there's anything that can be done here and now to address that? Great example. I mean, when you were talking about that, I've seen that commercial. It's it's a great example of interest convergence, right? So Amazon is going to put, and, and you know, the UVR does this too. Although I feel like we're moving. You know, you put your black and brown folks on your glossy magazine covers and in your commercials to say, "Look how great we are." Hmm but you don't actually change the system that produces, I mean, Amazon is notorious for just greed and, and, and extreme wealth accumulation for one person while, you know, not paying, not treating its work workers as human beings with any kind of respect. Right. And I wouldn't go so far as to say the U of R is that bad, but it is true that the U of R in systems are based in, in, in racism and sexism, you know, to the extreme, yes, we have a, a new female president, and yes, she is making some profound changes. It takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but, so there, there's a way, there's a way, um, I totally lost my train of thought there, I apologize, mm-hmm. but this idea of interest convergence, it's like it, it, makes, it, it makes Amazon look great. And it looks like they're doing anti-racist work when really like critical race theory would help us understand that all they did was put a Latino uh, on, in a commercial because it makes them look good so you'll continue to use their product. And it's people, I, I teach a class at, at Warner called Race, Class, Gender, and Disability and I it's, it's a wonderful class to teach. It's not always easy to teach because it takes a lot of work and a lot of courage for whiteness to come to see how it has benefited um, at the expense of others. People don't want to know that, right? And they, you know, others said, oh, you know, a person would say, you know, my family didn't own slaves. Okay, true. But, but whiteness benefited on the backs of these human beings um, and so, you know, your your family accumulated wealth. Your family did whatever. I mean, I'm not going to get into individuals, but this intersection between, you know, like being willing to 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 have the courage to examine how the society works and to take some action to change it. So, yes, I do believe we can change this. I did. I also think it's going to be just enormous amounts of work. But again, cut back to the earlier question about. Why do this in schools? Because it needs to be, people need to understand how to do the work, how to start the journey, how to, um, you know, move, I mean, you know, move past, like, oh, this feels bad, right? Um, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to, but I love, you know, I don't see color. Everybody's human. Yes, and that is absolutely true. Everybody is human. But color in this country matters. It shapes your access and your ability to move freely in and about society on a daily basis. And when you can walk through society, now as a white woman, I definitely 
you know, rape culture and, 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 and sort of patriarchy and, and misogyny impact my body every day as I walk around. But, you know, put me in a black woman's body and you have the intersection of race and uh, racism and sexism. And it's, it's, it, you know, um, much more complicated, much more painful. And I think we have to understand, we have to come to understand that and work against it. I do believe we can change it. Dr. Larson, I have a question that's sort of a follow-up to what you were just saying. You know, you were mentioning sort of going back to where we started about teaching in schools. And I think I want to branch a little bit. And I'm wondering, for people who are new, especially listeners who are hearing about critical race theory for the very first time and may not be related to an institution where they can take a class on critical race theory Mm. or know people who they can talk to about it. I'm curious how you first learned about it, if you are willing to share. And I'm wondering, how can people who aren't in school, who are just sort of living their life, learn about critical race theory and start to use it as a lens in their everyday life? Hmm. That's a great question. I think I first uh, learned academically, you know, like about critical race theory in my uh, doctoral study at UCLA. I think, though, I was I was interested and ready and heard it because my whole life I've been sort of looking at and trying to understand um, inequity of access to equal participation in society, probably mostly through like a feminist lens, even as a little kid. Mm-hmm. But it, so it 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 they work together really well, um, and then. I would say, I mean, you could you could read Derek Bell's work if you're interested. It's publicly available. Um, I I am not a person who who thinks Wikipedia is evil. So Wikipedia is a good place to start. It's a first search. Uh, I would definitely move on to other sources to get more in depth. But um, and I think uh, even Kendi's book. Um, there are two books. There's a, a, a historical like an academic history book called Stamped from the Beginning that's excellent, gives you um, a, a real sense of the tracing of racist ideas in the United States through history. It's brilliantly written. It's, it's definitely, it's a big book. It's like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages with millions of citations. It's very well done as a history, you know, an academic history book. He also has a more kind of crossover book called How to Be Anti-Racist that's, mm-hmm. um, that, that's useful to people. There, there are lots of books out now that, that could be useful. I think even though it's not critical race theory, Brene, Brene Brown's book on vulnerability, work on vulnerability is useful because we need to be, come to um, understand how to be vulnerable to, the, to new ideas and new ways of thinking and being in the world. Um, I would suggest, too, for, for white folks who, who have no connection with the black community or Latinx communities, you know, try to move outside of your bubble and um, come to know, get to know people as human beings. Now, it's not going to be easy because for very darn good reasons, they don't trust you. Um, but it's worth, there's just such richness and beauty in the varieties of cultures in this country to not be thrilled to get to know people and understand their ways of being just, 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 I just don't frankly understand. Um, I don't know if that answers you, answers your question, but there are a lot of resources. There isn't like a primer. Uh, there's a way, you know, you could read an academic piece on here are what the tenets, here's what the data, here's the evidence, blah, blah, blah. But it really is then the work that comes after, um, of, investigating. Uh, there's also a great book by Mark Lamont Hill called Nobody that does some of this work on on uh, five different cities and areas and people in, in the United States to understand how, how, for example, he does the work of Ferguson and Michael Brown, how that happened uh, through history and policies and practices. It's quite well done. It's worth, uh, for somebody who's new to these, this way of thinking, it's, it, it's very clear and uh, explains it with a lot of evidence so that 
you know you can you can really track track that evidence to see that it's a solid solid argument yeah i think those are great suggestions and and i think also the understanding of of going beyond reading is is really helpful thank you Dr. Larson, you've been very generous with your time this hour. I guess maybe in an unfair 30 or 40 seconds, tell us about the Center for Urban Education Success. You're speaking about work. Where can people (laughs) learn more locally about work uh, that's being done to uh, better our schools? Yeah, sorry, unfair, no kidding. Um, (laughs) Well, CUSE is is, uh, a center at the Warner School that that is is building on and expanding on the research and practice at East High School that we've been that the U of R has been doing to trans to partner with the East community to transform it. And at, on the Q's website, there's actually a ton of resources on some of the ways in which to do do things like switch from a disciplinary culture to a restorative justice culture. And what changes, and that is related to kind of addressing the disparities in discipline discipline between white and black students, for example. And here's some real real life, real world examples of how to change that. There's also um, linked on the Q's website would be two things. One, the um, elevated educator uh, curriculum website that gives that uh, the principal and teachers at East High School put their curriculum units up and available for you to the public where they've done a lot of this anti-racist work. And also Dr. Nelms and all the area superintendents have committed to producing um, anti-racist social studies curriculum and they have, that's also linked, uh, and they have work on uh, the, they've been producing a curriculum unit on the 64 riots. It goes to the idea of teaching accurate history Many of the young people grew up in Rochester and don't really learn about that event and what it what it meant to Rochester and how it changed the community. Um, so th- that would be a couple of things. I think that's probably longer than thirty seconds. But I encourage people to go to Q's website. There are a lot of resources there. That's the Center for Urban Education Success. And this hour, we are joined by Dr. Joanne Larson. She's the Michael W. Scanling Professor of Education and the Associate Director of Research at the aforementioned Center for Urban Education Success at the (laughs) University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. Dr. Larson, very generous with your time. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you all. Take care. Thank you. Well, that will conclude our show today. Thank you all so much for joining your local grassroots community radio station at 100.9 FM WXIR. This was Evidence of Design. Stay in touch with us throughout the week. Search for our YouTube, uh, search for our podcasted episodes anywhere you get your podcast or on YouTube at Evidence of Design. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Sharon. And Mary Lawrence. Be well. Be well, be safe, take care, and bye-bye.